0: Hello, hello, and welcome back to today's episode of the 7 Figure Millennials Podcast, where it is my job to help you to prioritize your happiness, health, and relationships while making your biggest entrepreneurial dreams a reality. And if this is your very, very first episode, I want to say welcome. I'm super excited to have you here. And if you're returning, welcome back. I would give you a hug if I could, because I appreciate you coming back week after week. And I'm so excited, whether you are new or returning, because today you and I get to hang out with B. Jeffrey Maddox. One super quick thing that I want to say before I dive into Jeffrey's bio is that he was actually introduced to me by another guest on the show, Michael Roderick. And if you haven't listened to the episode with Michael Roderick, you'll know that Michael is a super connector. So when I asked Michael who should come onto the seven figure millennials podcast, he picked to be Jeffrey Madoff. And Jeffrey is an absolute rock star as you're going to find out on this show, but it's always really cool to kind of see the relationships between other guests. And a thank you for Michael for this incredible introduction, because this conversation was a blast. So going to Jeffrey's bio, Jeffrey began his career as a fashion designer. He was chosen as one of the top 10 designers in the United States, but then he eventually switched careers to film and video production. Jeffrey directed award winning commercials, documentaries, and web content around the world for clients such as Ralph Lauren, Victoria's Secret, and Tiffany. So you've probably seen some of his commercials if you've been watching TV and seen any of those brands before. It's probably been Jeffrey that was behind the scenes for that. So going back, he also works with private equity firms and investment banks, such as Lazard to create the brand story for companies that are being sold or startups looking to attract investment. His book, Creative Careers, making a living with your ideas. And an Amazon bestseller based on the class he teaches at the Parsons School of Design. Jeffrey is also a playwright and theater producer. His play Personality, the Lloyd Price musical based on the life of rock and roll hall of fame legend Lloyd Price will have its world premiere in February of 2022 at People's Light Theater. He has been a featured speaker on creating a brand and creativity at Wharton School, Princeton University, NYU, Steinhardt, Google Next, Barclays, Bank, Rise, and Verizon. He graduated with honors from the University of Wisconsin with degrees in philosophy and psychology. Jeffrey was also on the wrestling team, which combined with his academic studies prepared him for a life in the film business. And in this episode, you're going to learn so much. But as always, I want you to look out for three specific things – Thing number one, what Jeff learned about fairness and good management from a monkey while working in a shoe store. Number two, how by the age of 22, Jeff had 110 employees two factories when he decided to completely switch careers to film and video production and leave all that behind. And number three, you're also going to hear some crazy behind the scenes stories behind some of Jeff's most successful content he's produced for Ralph Lauren and Victoria's Secret, including what the myth of the lightning bolt and the Hamilton musical had to do with with helping him create one of the most successful Victoria's Secret promotions of all time. And one last thing before we dive into all the juicy goodness and all the crazy stories from today's episode, I want to give a pre-show listener shout out to reviewer Michael Swain, who left a review on iTunes saying, within the first three episodes, Brandon drops huge amounts of value. His magic connection method is game changing and he lays out a desirable and successful mindset while inviting you into the fold. Definitely worth your careful attention. So thank you so much, Michael, for leaving that review and for also being an early listener. If you've been listening since the very first three episodes, that is so awesome. So really appreciate you. And if you're a returning listener and you're listening to my voice right now and you haven't left a review yet, you can head to millennials.com slash review to find out exactly how to do that. And not only does it make my day and help Get more exposure and more listeners for the show. But if you also choose to leave an honest review, I have a little thank you gift I'd like to give you in return that reveals exactly how I get incredible guests like Mr. B. Jeffrey Madoff on the show and how you can get the high level connections you need to grow your business. You've heard the quote all the time. You are the combination of the five people you spend the most time with. But how do you actually connect with incredible people? So I'm going to show you how to do that if you choose to leave an honest review at 7 slash review. But besides that, please enjoy this incredible conversation with my friend, B. Jeffrey Madoff. If you had to pick between A, making a ton of money, B, being happy, healthy, and surrounded with people you love, or C, making a meaningful impact on the world, which would you choose? The good news is that today we don't have to choose. So the question is, how can entrepreneurs like you and me, who have a vision for our lives and aren't willing to settle for anything less, How can we become financially successful and have a big impact while prioritizing our happiness, health, and relationships? You and I are on a mission to find out, and we have an incredible journey ahead of us. My name is Brandon Fong, and welcome to the 7 Figure Millennials Podcast. Jeff, welcome to the show. Super excited to have you here. Thank you, Brandon. I'm super excited to be here. Yeah, this is going to be a blast. And I thought we'd kick things off by having you start by telling us the story of when you directed the Deck the Halls uh commercial or video for Victoria's Secret which ended up becoming one of the most viewed videos ever and so I would love for you to kind of maybe set the scene tell us what was going on and what happened as a result of that day uh when you were on the set
1: oh sure you know because that was a really fun shoot we were doing a Christmas spot for Victoria's Secret and it was going to be playing in their, their their stores all over the world and uh we had to get duty-free, not duty-free, we had to get royalty-free music. And so Deck the Halls is in the public domain. And uh, I thought, well, this could be fun. We have the Victoria's Secret Angels trimming a tree and wrapping packages and all that sort of thing. And uh, so we had a really great set design, the costumes were fun. And then as the models started to sing, they kept screwing up the lyrics. And the reason was, and and this was part of my design, the reason was, is I knew, you know, that Dowson, for instance, you know, they don't have Deck the Halls, you know, in, in Denmark. That's not part of what they sing. And in Australia, Miranda Kerr doesn't sing Deck the Halls. And that's a Christmas carol that's germane to the United States. So Alessandra Ambrosio, uh, you know, from Brazil, that's not a Christmas carol there. So they kept screwing up. And my client standing next to me says, oh, my God, what are we going to do? This is horrible. They can't even get through the song. And I said, no, that's the spot. And they looked at me like I was nuts. And I said, we're, you always show these women as just being flawless and <clears throat> beautiful. And they are beautiful, but they're not flawless. They're human beings. And so we're going to show them this way and humanize it. And we're going to have fun with the faux pas that they make. And it ended up getting so much uh, organic viral spread that it played on the Today Show, on Entertainment Tonight, on tons and tons of programs. And no one was expecting to catch that kind of lightning in the bottle. But it was a lot of fun and it remains, you know, one of the favorite spots.
0: So that was by design. You inten- it wasn't one of those things where you were on the set and you're like, oh my god, they're screwing up. What are we going to do to pivot? It was intentional that you knew that it wouldn't be a a good thing, and that was kind of the foresight that you had from the very beginning.
1: I guessed that they would screw it up. First of all, they're not singers, right? So there's going to be a certain vulnerability. But I have a, a very good relationship with the models, and I knew I would never never do anything that would make them look bad or place them in an uncomfortable light or anything like that. So it was a kind of thing where, as you saw on the spot, they're actually having fun even with the mistakes, you know? And uh, so I my guess was they wouldn't know the song. I didn't think we could lose. If they made it through the music, the rest of it would be cute. But uh, I felt like there's a really high likelihood that they're not going to be able to get through it. Mm. And that was the spot.
0: I love that. And if anybody, I'll make sure to put it in the show notes, but I did watch the video and it is hilarious. I watched it multiple times. So it was kind of cool to hear the behind the scenes of how that was created. So if you're listening to this, you do get a chance to check that out. It's it's really, really cool. And I could definitely see why it opened the doors to really relating with them because they are so inaccessible and so in the light all the time. So that was really cool. On a similar topic, this is kind of transitions directly into this, but one of the things that you just mentioned there was the fact that the, model trusted, the models trusted you so much, right? And it takes a lot of skill and director talent to develop that kind of rapport with somebody for them to trust you that like, hey, we're going to kind of put you in this awkward position where you're used to kind of being perfect all the time. And another thing that you talk about in your book that I thought was so powerful is you did another photo shoot uh, for a documentary called Embrace, which was a social documentary about issues of body loathing and inspiring us to change the way we feel about ourselves and think about our bodies. And so I thought this would be an interesting thing because I wanted to dive in. And one of the things that you specifically said in this photo shoot is because you were bringing together a whole bunch of people with different body types types, ethnicities to do this photo shoot. And some of them hadn't done photo shoots before. The the quote that you said in the book is their discomfort was palpable. And as a director, you kind of had to work to make them feel safe. So I just think that overall it's so important that as we build relationships, whether you're directing or interviewing, it's important to know how to people that make people feel safe. So any 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 suggestions that you might have for how we can build that kind of rapport and bond with people.
1: Well first of all I think that you have to listen and you know address concerns that people have and maybe they don't even articulate the concerns, but you can tell that they're uncomfortable that, you know, what I did is first do group shots and the embrace, which was part of a documentary Uh, I did group shots and I did those group shots so that they'd all be in front of the camera together, you know, and I had very little time to establish rapport and you have to establish rapport quickly in those kinds of situations. And with that rapport comes the trust. So I've joked around a lot, which is, you know, I use humor a lot in, in my work and, and how I relate because that can make people feel comfortable. And so I'll use that as kind of the way in. And of course you have to know who your audience is mm. when you are making jokes and doing things so that it's not taken the wrong way. And it's like any relationship, Listening is a huge part of it and really sort of sensing the person and who they are and then having an empathic response to their discomfort. Mm-hmm. So that as opposed to saying, look, it's going to be fine, you know, that kind of thing. You can't cast it off like that. You know, let them know that you understand, you know, that, yeah, this is awkward. You know, you're standing around in your underwear. You know, this isn't everyday behavior. Uh, But, you know, we're going to have fun with it and let me let me know if you feel uncomfortable at all. And we'll just work together on that. And as a director, whether I'm directing dramatic pieces, fun pieces, just pretty looking things, uh, pretty looking spots and so on, in any of the work that I do as a director, and I think this is true with any director, your primary job is to make the talent feel safe so that they will express. And because I've worked with many of the top models in the world, if they don't feel confident what you're gonna do, they're gonna do that one thing that they know works. And they're not gonna move off the mark because they don't have to. But if you can, like with the Victoria's Secret spot that you mentioned, there's a sense of play and discovery then we're all engaged in the same playtime. And uh, we know that nobody is going to be made fun of. Nobody's going to be put into an embarrassing light. And then you can explore and that's true in acting or modeling or anything. And it's the same. And I'd turn the question back to you, Brandon, about interviewing people. You know, we were talking slight a little bit before we started about preparation and how rigorously you prepare. And, uh, why do you put so much into it
0: i think i said you know before we hit the record button to me the relationship is just so important and that that you know you can replace money you can replace material things at the end of the day but like i think the to go the extra effort to really show someone that you care to do that level of research that's just something that i think really bonds you and like you said in it, it's all about the rapport and the trust that you're able to build with them and so i think that you like you said you can't ask questions off the cuff, you can. And that's part of the interview is you're allowed to go down these tangents, but you're not able to ask the depth of questions to really form the relationship unless you've done your research ahead of time.
1: Right. Yeah. You know, I was, uh, some years ago, I spent a day with Tony Bennett and, you know, he's a fantastic singer is, you know, iconic is a word that's overused, but not in describing him. He is an iconic singer. And, I did This is probably close to 20 years ago or so, 25 years ago. And I did my research on him. I knew about his career. But what I discovered was how important painting was to him. And that, that's another area of expression that he just absolutely loves. So I looked at his work. And then uh, when we started the interview, I said, Tony, you know, I'm really fascinated by the fact that through the realm of expression you have and how, what an amazing singer you are, but you have a whole other thing and it's not audio singing or music. It's visual. It's your painting. Why did, why were you attracted to painting and what do you express through that? And he lit up because he has so little opportunity to talk about that. Mm -hmm. And so I think you find a way in. And if you do your homework, you can find a way in and you establish the trust that you were talking about, <clears throat> you establish the relationship, and the conversation goes <clears throat> in much more meaningful direction. And it's more interesting for the audience because it's stuff they never heard before.
0: Yeah, I think it's partly the job of the interviewer to kind of sort through what you want to come out. So I love that. And it's funny, because the person that connected us, Michael Roderick, I interviewed him last week. And I think there's another thing you could do for the relationship building thing. But I'm really excited about this. I'm just gonna, I wasn't planning on talking about this. But uh, Michael Roderick had a production company called C3P or R2D2 productions or something like that. So I knew he was a star Wars fan and I came across in doing my research that he was a comic book person. So I was on, I was at Lake Geneva. Uh, I was just uh, up in in Wisconsin with my wife this weekend and we were walking around downtown and there's a comic book store. And so I found this comic book store and I went and I found a comic that is specifically R2-D2. So it combined the the comic and the R2-D2, and I'm going to send that to Michael as a thank you gift. So that's just the fun stuff that I think it's so cool to build these because there's so many transactional relationships, you know, and it's like when you you build long-term transformational relationships that are based on care for the person, research for the person, and show that you genuinely care, you know, it's not about doing something in the short term. It's really about the long-term play. And I think that when you have that foresight, that's really when the magic happens. Well, and then that translates into
1: just good business practice also. You know, you build trust in business, Uh, and you know Victoria's Secret, who you mentioned, was a client for 26 years. Ralph Lauren was a client for 36 years. You know, that's a long time to hold on to a client that everybody is after because you know the amount of work they do and everything. But when you establish trust, when you establish a rapport, uh, when you don't take the relationship for granted and you continue to bring new ideas to the table, not just assume you've got the work, you know, relationships need to be vital, dynamic, and evolving all the time to keep everybody
0: interested. Yeah, love that. So there's a bunch of relationships if I want to dive in, but there's one more kind of like open loop I want to close. So people have heard like, you've done Victoria's Secret, you've worked with Calvin Klein, Harvard School for Public Health, Radio City Music Hall. And in reading your book, my personal opinion on what I think contributed to this incredible career that you've had has to do with the fact that you've been in alignment with your genius. So to tell people what I mean, would you mind sharing the story about the childhood movie theater that you created uh, when you're around 12 years old?
1: (laughs) So, uh, you know, I've always liked film and uh, there was a place that you could rent films in Akron, Ohio, where I grew up. (laughs) And so what I would do is rent these eight millimeter films. And, you know, my parents had a projector, wasn't sound. So I have an older sister and I borrowed her portable stereo and uh, I would put together soundtracks and sound effects and sync it up with the movie. It's a little rough because I have to drop the needle, right? as the thing was starting. Uh, And then I would record it. And so I had a, a unique soundtrack for the silent movie <laughs> and uh, I would design posters, put them around the neighborhood. Uh, it was very low overhead because my dad would buy these drums of popcorn and I'd take the lunch bags and sell little bags of popcorn Uh very low overhead because I didn't pay my dad anything for the popcorn. <laughs> uh, I have to find that business model somehow now. How do you get stuff for free and sell it? <laughs> there <you> that, go. <laughs> that's a way to increase your margins tremendously. Just don't pay for it and sell it, you know. Uh, and I would get, you know, 12, 15 kids from the neighborhood and they'd watch the movies and it'd show like three films. There'd be a main feature which was probably 20 minutes and then like three shorts, cartoons or little sitcom kinds of things with Laurel and Hardy or something like that. And it was really fun and I loved doing it. And uh, I think that it's really important to look back at what do you, in what did you enjoy doing when you were a kid? What gave you a sense of joy? You know, what was really fun for you? And I ask my guests in my class every week, if we knew you when you were a kid, would we be surprised at the direction that your life has taken? Or would we say, oh, that makes perfect sense that Brandon is interviewing people and doing what he's doing because he was always curious. He was always inquisitive. And you found a way to parlay that into your career. And I think that we lose track of that sense of play and that kind of thing that just captures you when you're a kid. And, you know, if you're fortunate enough to be able to figure out a way to make a living doing that, you know, you're going to be happy because you're doing what you love doing. And as the cliche goes, and then it's not really work. We all have to make a living. So you got to figure out, you know, how do you charge for what you do and how do you make a business out of it, which is part of what my book is about. But I think that that's really important because People lose that sense of play. And I think that's very sad.
0: Yeah. I think that's a recurring theme that has come up on the show that I love that you you shared is that I mean this I've said this multiple times, but I always believe that alignment equals velocity is like the more that you're in alignment with you what you naturally are doing. And I love that question that you just added on top of that. If we knew you as a kid, would we be surprised? So as you're listening to this right now, ask yourself that question, or maybe have some friends ask that question about yourself, uh, because I think that has lots of insights. And the more that we can get to that core of who we always were uh, is something that that is this should be definitely examined. So um, I'm kind of following kind of a, chronological order here. So we talked a little bit about your, your, your childhood. There's another story I want to kind of get, and then we can kind of dive into uh, some of the other stuff that you're doing, but like uh, this is, this is a prompt that you kind of helped me with, but uh, I'll just, I'll just toss it out there with no context and we'll just go from there. So ask, you said, ask me about how I learned about fairness and good judgment from a monkey. And I think this comes from a time of your life uh, that is kind of the next segment from what we were just talking about. So tell, tell us about that monkey and what you learned from it.
1: So, uh, there was a new shopping mall that opened up in Akron and I was looking for a job. Uh, and I was 16 or so, 16, 17, and went to this family shoe store that was hiring and they had put in an ad for, they wanted somebody who was at least 21 married, uh, had at least two years of shoe selling experience. I was 16, single, and never sold a pair of shoes. But I had sold things before. And uh, I met with the manager of the store, and it was a chain uh, in in uh, Ohio. And we really hit it off. He was a really good guy. And uh, he said, you know, Jeff, you have none of the qualifications. <laughs> we were like, well, you're an engaging kid, uh, but you have none of the qualifications. And... I, I, I just can't hire you. And I said to him, well, Bob, I sold you. That's got to be harder than selling a pair of shoes. And he laughed and goes, yeah, it is. But you know what? I just can't do it. So we shook hands. I'm walking out. And he comes after me and says, Jeff, wait, you're hired. So he went against what the corporate line was, took a chance on me. When I got hired, uh, you know, there were five of us and I was by far the youngest. And at the back of the store, there was a monkey. This would never happen these days, (laughs) you know, Uh, and rightly so. It shouldn't Uh, because this monkey would be, you know, tortured by kids. And it was it was looking back on it. It's both humorous and horrible at the same time. But there was this monkey at the back of the store and the assistant manager you know, who was in his mid forties uh, said to me, clean the monkey cage. I said, uh, do you clean the monkey cage? And he said, no, I told you to clean the monkey cage. And I said, I wasn't hired to be a zookeeper. I was hired to sell shoes. If everybody takes their turn, then I'll take my turn too. But if you're just putting that on me, cause I'm the youngest, I'm not doing it. So he calls Bob, the manager over. And he said, I told Jeff to clean the monkey cage. And he said, he's not going to do it. And I said, I'm not going to do it unless everybody else takes their turn. If everybody else does it, I'll do it. But I'm not being singled out to clean the monkey cage. And so the assistant manager digs in his heels and Bob interrupts and says, Jim, why don't you show Jeff and everybody else how to clean the monkey cage? And then we'll all take turns from now on. And I thought, wow, he... Stuck up for what was fair and what was right. He didn't discriminate because I was a kid. And, uh, you know, the combination of him hiring me and then the combination of that monkey incident where it changed the policy and that everybody took their turn gave me tremendous respect for the way to manage people, treat people fairly, hear what they've got to say and do the right thing. So it was a big deal to me. And clearly, since this is, you know, 50 years later, that lesson really stuck with me in terms of how you manage and treat people fairly and to, you know, be
0: aligned. I love that. And I want to zoom in on a like a, the very beginning of that story. I'm just kind of curious, were you always naturally this kind of person that would apply for things or go for things that weren't necessarily you know, things you were supposed to do, like most adults and most 16 year olds, for sure, wouldn't see a job description that like, oh, this person's supposed to be married and they have all this experience. I'm not even going to apply. It's like what what made you apply for that when you weren't qualified for it? Is that just kind of something natural you've always done? Uh,
1: It is. Yes. You know, I always figured that if I felt I could do it, And I had sold, I did, you know, door-to-door sales before that. And you've got, you know, around eight seconds, you know, to engage somebody when they open the door before they slam it in your face. And again, this was years ago, but I don't think people would even open the door for you anymore. But back in those days in Akron, you know, doing door-to-door sales, uh, being a paper boy and having a paper route and understanding that I was buying papers wholesale and selling them retail. And I had to bill the people and collect the money. You know, I learned certain business skills and my parents were in retailing. And so I had done some retail sales on a little level because they thought I was a cute kid. And I would, I would be in this one department and they would, uh, you know, buy stuff from me. So I, I felt like I could do it. And so it wasn't just a, what are you kidding? You're ridiculous. Now I wouldn't suggest hiring somebody like me with no experience if you were <laughs> having to have surgery. You know, I think you'd want somebody who uh, had a background in surgery. But when you're talking about selling and when you're talking about things that are, let's call it more personality driven, uh, I felt that I could do it. And I was fortunately raised by parents who allowed me to express, allowed me to go for those things and never discouraged me from trying what I was curious about trying. So that, uh, and my guess is by the way, that you were probably that kind of kid too, that the, you didn't let the typical obstacles stop you. Is that
0: accurate? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, a little bit of my story is I, I, I grew up on the free lunch program at school and my least favorite part of the day was going through the lunch checkout line when, you know, I'd, I'd watch as, my friend Matt would go through the checkout line. It would show $7 for his lunch. And Katie would go through and it would show $5 for lunch. And I would be just waiting in line, my heart beating faster and faster. And then I'd put my student ID up and then it would show up on the screen, Brandon Fong, $0.00 showing that I qualified for that free lunch program. And that was so embarrassing for me, the fact that like I didn't want any of my friends to see that. So yeah, I, I've always had to kind of figure things out from a very early age. Uh, and I, it's something that I used to hate. Uh, growing up through that experience, but as I look back at it, it's one of the most powerful things that I've ever had. So I love that we have, or that you've had those similar experiences of kind of just having to figure things out from an early age as well. Not necessarily that it was because of circumstance, but it just seemed out of ambition that you were just looking at solving problems.
1: But, you know, what you talk about, and, and this, this dovetails into what I teach at Parsons and what the book is about, which is creativity, Because what you were dealing with, and this is why a lot of people shut down, even as early as elementary school, and it's not necessarily their parents, it could be their peers, what you were experiencing in that cafeteria line was a sense of shame, that you did not want to be singled out as being different in that way. Mm -hmm. And that that was kind of humiliating. And so how do you deal with that in a healthy way? And build on that, learn from that. And, you know, oftentimes those lessons you look back in retrospect and you see what you learned, going through it is horrible and painful and embarrassing. But, you know, I think that's also why people creatively shut down so young is because there's a sense of shame and humiliation about presenting what they do and who they are, and that people can be pretty mean about it.
0: Yeah. And this may may be relevant, but I I'm, I'm just going to take a gamble here because you you had shared a little bit earlier about um you know the importance of your parents and how your 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 dad was your financier for your popcorn <laughs> and you mentioned him a little bit before, but uh one of the things that came across in your book that I wanted to make sure I asked about was like part you said part of dinner time was them discussing business decisions. It was like a really small line, but I highlighted it cuz I'm like, oh, that's like not a normal, you know, part of the normal lexicon of a a family dinner time. So like, can you just tell us a little bit about those those business decision conversations at dinner time and maybe how that helped you on your entrepreneurial journey? Uh,
1: My parents had uh, retail stores, women's and children's retail stores in Akron, you know, small specialty stores. And uh, both my mom and dad not only worked together, they didn't work in the same stores, Uh, You know, there were two that were my mom's responsibility. Uh, Then the others were my dad's, but then they would share in the sales reports each day. And they were small companies, small businesses. And so my parents were entrepreneurs. And what I grew up and I didn't know there was anything different, except that my mom worked and most of the mothers in the neighborhood did not work. And my parents took a lot of crap for that you know, early on, uh, they would say to my mom, what's the matter? Can't Ralph, my father, can't he afford to take care of you? And to my dad, they would say, why, why are you letting your wife work? And my dad said, it's not about me letting her work. She wants to work. That's what she does. And my sister owns her own business and she's an entrepreneur. So, I grew up, and I think there's a way that this really benefited me, is I grew up with a parents, male and female, who shared in business decisions. And that my dad would listen to my mom because she was very savvy, very smart. My mom would listen to my dad. They didn't always agree, but you know, they they did things in a way that provided for the family. You know, I wasn't aware when I was a kid some of the risks they took you know, and in growing their business and all that. You don't know that when you're a kid, you just know the circumstances you're in. But I think that it really helped me because uh, when I was coming up, women in authority was just not an issue to me. I grew up with that. You know, women who made decisions, who had strong personalities, who were in authority positions. And so I never had issues in business dealing with women. And it used I used to get into discussions and I'm talking... 30 years ago, 40 years ago, I'd get in discussions with people because they'd say how somebody's, this woman's a ball buster. That's what it means. She's a ball buster. Yeah, she's, you know, she's tough. And she's, you know, just a ball buster. I hate dealing with it. It's well, so how come it's, how come it's like when a guy is tough and makes decisions, he's a good, strong leader and a woman's a ball buster. I don't understand. What's the difference between the two? Other than you're being pejorative towards women when in fact they're doing what a male does and that's okay with you. But when a woman does it, that's somehow not okay with you. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I I grew up in an environment that there was that equality back and forth. And when I went out into the real world and heard how people talked and saw saw how they related, uh, that was foreign to me. Fortunately, I didn't have that issue because of my mom and dad and, you know, the behaviors that were modeled as I was growing up.
0: So it seems like you kind of had this like perfect formula, like maybe you didn't realize it at the time, like a perfect formula for entrepreneurial growth. You had parents that were letting you in on business decisions. You were selling popcorn at an early age in movies. You had the newspaper that you mentioned. And, and so you were kind of like, it was like a breeding ground for, for entrepreneurship. And so, I mean, it's kind of interesting because I know you had a degree in philosophy and psychology. So like most people would look at that and be like, okay, that doesn't have much to do with business, but like your experiences is really what developed this kind of business acumen. So um, I mean, maybe, maybe this is a a good place to go next, but I would love to maybe hear hear you share. Cause I think this transitions to the, the, the phase out of the, the shoe store, but into the next phase where you had your kind of your burst, first big venture. So would you mind sharing a little bit about the story about the Triumph motorcycle <laughs> and how, how uh, hauling a bunch of your first um, you know set of clothes on the back of that thing and how you got to that point?
1: Uh, so I graduated from college. I was working in a small boutique in Madison. I did the buying for the store. The owner was only three years older than I. Uh, And it was the kind of place that we were in the base of a rooming house Uh, and said on the shelf that was the common wall. The other side of that wall was the stairway up to the rooming house. And on the shelf would be the stereo, the turntable. These were records back then, if you can imagine that distant past. (laughs) And when somebody OD'd in the uh, rooming house and fell down the stairs, the arm would skip across the record. And we go, Oh, there goes another one. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, you know, uh, and I got a call one day from a dear friend of mine who I don't remember not knowing his mother and my mother grew up together. And so we were like toddlers, you know, on the floor together when we were months old. Uh, and he graduated he was a little bit older than I, and he graduated from college and he said, uh, Listen, I've saved up some money. Can you think of a gig that would earn more than bank interest? And I said, well, I see what we sell and uh, I could always draw. So I said, I'll start a clothing company. And, uh, and I think I said that because I got the call in the store. You know, <laughs> that was pre-cell phone. So he had called me at work and we were talking
0: you were in and, a butterfly exhibit at the time, maybe you would be a Exactly right. Exactly <laughs> right.
1: I wonder about that. I'm glad I wasn't in the bathroom. Uh,
0: <laughs> you could so, have found a poopery. You could have found a poopery years before it was created. <laughs> there,
1: there you go. Uh, so, you know, I, when I, one of the things that I realized early on, and I think it's from my previous sales experience and doing selling, even in the store, was What's critical to business is a proof of concept. You know, so I had some of the sewers who would uh, do alterations for the store, sew up some of my designs. Uh, and, you know, I won't go through the whole story, but I knew nothing. You know, I was very naive uh, and I was very ignorant. Uh, but there's a difference between being ignorant and being stupid and I wasn't stupid. And that is that ignorance, you can learn. Stupid's forever. And so I was ignorant and I learned quickly. And so I had some samples sewn up. Uh, we put them in the store. They sold out immediately. Uh, had to make some more sold out immediately again. And then, I. Uh, made a bigger line of clothes. So I would have a number of items to sell to the point about the motorcycle. I put them in a suitcase, strapped it on the back of my Triumph, drove to Chicago, went to 18 boutiques. And I think I sold 14 of them and oh, all ratio. of a sudden, yeah, it was very, <laughs> what well, was the beginning of what was called the temper, the contemporary market in fashion. And, you know, I was at the beginning of that, you know, transition. Uh, Cause there wasn't anything it was interesting because you either dress like a kid or you dressed like an adult and there wasn't like anything in between, you know, and I didn't want to dress like my parents and I didn't want to dress like a kid. And so I designed stuff that I liked. And, you know, when I was interviewed back then, what was the fashion Bible was women's wear daily. And when I was interviewed and they said, so you're not the junior marker, which meant younger, and you're not the adult market, what are you? And I said, I'm selling to my contemporaries, contemporary market. And I'm not the only one that used that term, but I was one of the very early ones that used that term. Uh, And that's what that category became, which exploded, was was huge. But uh, what that showed me, both things selling in the store, expanding it, going to Chicago and going to these stores, was that there was actually a market for my ideas. People actually bought it. They put money down. It wasn't like, oh, this is great. You're doing cool stuff, but they wouldn't pay for it. You know, they had to commit dollars to it. And that's how you know when you have an idea and a proof of concept that you can do that. So I think that was a really important lesson. And that's the story of the motorcycle to Chicago.
0: Yeah. Just want to unpack and highlight a bunch of things there too, because it's just so important is that, I mean, in any stage of business, whether you're an existing business, creating a new line or a new product, or if you're just getting off the ground, this important, uh, this story just completely illustrates the idea of validating, doing small tests. And like you just said, like people vote with their wallets at the end of the day, people can say, Oh, that's a fantastic idea. And I think that lots of, uh, starting entrepreneurs hear that they're like, great, I'm going to start a business around it. And they invest all this time, energy and effort into creating something that like nobody ever wants. Uh, so that really like, will they pull out their credit card is always the metric that you're looking for is they can say, they can say, um, no in a million different ways of like, oh, maybe and kind of being fuzzy, but they can only say yes when they put on the credit card. So it's very important.
1: <laughs> you know, and, and that lesson, it's funny you mentioned that uh, this jumps ahead a bit, but that lesson also is when you're raising money. So, you know, I've been raising money for the play that I'm doing Yep. and and uh, Lloyd Price, who the play is about, who, who just died a couple of weeks ago, but an Saw amazing, that. amazing person, and, you know, I'm meeting with all these people to try to raise money for the earlier iterations of the show. And uh, he said, Jeff, there's a million ways to say no. But there's only one way to say yes, you write a check. <laughs> and, and it's really true. You hear all of these things. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested in this. Keep me in the loop. You know, and all the, what I call the long no where you have meetings and meetings and meetings
0: (laughs) the painful but nothing happens (laughs)
1: yes uh but yeah and and that was a that was an important lesson to learn too because it doesn't make any difference what they say it makes a difference what they do if they buy it you've got a viable product if they tell you oh this is great i mean it's i'm not ready for it now but this is really great it doesn't mean anything
0: how has your, has your understanding of that developed and changed at all over time? Is it out of different contexts or is it pretty much the same? Like what commonalities have you seen from validating the, 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 clothing store to now doing a musical? Is it all kind of a similar thread?
1: It is, you know, I, I really believe that everything you do informs everything else that you do. So, you know, when I was, uh, selling shoes, I learned how to, initiate a conversation with people and the end goal of that conversation, even though it was subtext initially, the end goal of that was to sell them shoes. You know, that's how the store stayed open. So you had to sell the goods, so to speak. And that was really important. Well, when I was pitching for the play, this is decades later, it's the same kind of thing. I had to establish a rapport and then Put the question out there in terms of, of investing, and you know some people you have to follow up with and have a few meetings. Some people, it seems, you know, your your radar gets more sensitive in terms of uh, you know who's actually going to act on what they say, and a lot of people confuse meetings with something actually happening, and a lot of times meetings are just a waste of time because you know I, I told this one potential investor who ended up not investing, uh, after our third meeting, he said, well, uh, you know, let's let's talk again. Uh, I'd like to meet again. And I said, look, there's nothing new to say. You're not going to find out anything new. I have nothing new to tell you. You're either in or you're out. So I want to respect your time and I want you to respect mine. Do you want to get involved or not? Well, I'm not prepared to make a decision now, and I said, "Okay, well, I'll send you the updates, but we don't need to meet again." And uh, you know, I'm shorthanding this, but that was the essence of the meeting because it was clear to me that they were never going to pony up the money. And but they got an enjoyment of saying, "Oh well, yeah, I'm meeting about this play, and you know, people like having all these these balls." But you go, stroking, yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. And meanwhile, I'm trying to get something financed so it can survive. Yeah. So you have to go. It's one of the things I learned uh, when I was on the wrestling team, you know, uh, the, the sports metaphors. But it's true when you meet resistance, it's going to exhaust you to fight against the resistance. So what you do is find the vulnerable opening and pivot to that. And that's also true in business. So, you know, I'm not going to spend meeting after meeting trying to convince somebody to do something. The chances are they're not going to do it. I can put that energy towards somebody else who might. And time is better spent that way than trying to win somebody over where chances are pretty high you're not going to.
0: Yeah. I think the directness, people respect that you know, like it's something that people learn to appreciate, especially over time when you're, when you're dealing with the people that are tire kickers, it's important that I think people respect you more when you're more direct like that sometimes too. And you had just, um, you were just talking about pitching. So that's kind of where I kind of got into this train of thought, but like you are a master at getting your ideas pitched, right? Like like you have to pitch these commercial ideas. You have to pitch this new play. So any suggestions for people that are like, they maybe have an idea that they haven't brought to life yet, but they need to get people on board, whether it's financing or just those first initial customers, if you're validating an idea, any suggestions that you developed over the years on how we can be more effective with our pitches?
1: Yeah, you know, uh, because a pitch is a story. And it's also a, a proposition. You know, People, you're pitching people on some kind of business investment or buying something. Uh, and what you're pitching them about is that, that offer that you're making them. So how do you make a compelling offer? You know, you create a story, a narrative about that offer. And the only way that you can tell a good story is editing. This is true across the board. Uh, and, and whether you're doing a pitch, whether you're writing a play, you know, whether you're designing a line of clothes, whether you're making a movie, whether you're writing a book, whatever it is, look at your pitch as a story. And so you need to edit, 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 and then edit again, get feedback from people who are in that business. Don't talk to your friends who aren't in the business. Talk to people who are in the business. So I'm doing a thing for private equity firms now. And I sent it to friends of mine in private equity. And and a friend of mine put it very succinctly. He said, they're interested in two things. How much is it gonna cost them and how much is it gonna make them? And if there's enough of a differential between how much it costs and how much they'll make, that that gets their attention. And they glaze over when you go into overdrive and selling. Mm -hmm. So you've got to tell that story that's going to hook them. And that requires editing. And most people don't look at a pitch as a story, but that's in fact what it is. Why should you do this? You know, why should you invest in X or why should you buy X? Is it somehow going to make your life easier? Is it going to make your life better? You know, what is it? And, you know, there's a phrase that kind of drives me crazy in entrepreneurial circles, which is, well, I want to bring value. I want to deliver value. Bullshit. You want to sell something. That's what you're doing. Your value proposition is a sales proposition. So somebody will buy something or invest in something. If they passionately believe in the mission that you're on, if they find the product or service that you're selling is desirable, they're going to make a profit from it because that's why most people invest. And, And by the way, a play is not a good investment. You might catch lightning in a bottle and you do something like Hamilton or you do something like Dear Evan Hansen and it returns high multiples of the initial investment. But most plays, like most businesses, fail, you know, and so you really have to believe in that mission and believe that there is something worth doing. And so you have to tell a compelling story. And what I have been told. is that my passion for Lloyd Price's story is contagious. People get that. And Lloyd's story is amazing. And I can tell you why it's amazing. And I can tell you why this might not be a profitable investment, but it's going to be a really fun investment because you're going to be involved in a process with highly talented people that is very fulfilling. And I think that one of the questions that often isn't asked is what does success look like to you? What is success? And if it's only translating into dollars, you're going to have a pretty limited view of the kinds of things you get involved with. And, you know, I thought about, you know, because I can look at balance sheets, I can do all that stuff, but I never wanted to go into financial markets. That was just never interesting to me, you know? Uh, And I got involved in investing when I was quite young and I did okay until I didn't you know, because I got too arrogant and realized, you know, the old monkey in a dartboard could probably be just as successful as most of these things. Uh, But I think that it's really, it's, it's, it's important to know what you're selling, who are you selling it to, and what makes it appealing. And so what's the compelling aspects of that? And that's what a pitch is.
0: So I'll be honest how I'm feeling right now. I'm feeling like I'm on that game show where they have, they offer like five different doors to open and like you can choose a door. So you just opened like six different doors that I can, (laughs) I can go into right now. So, um, a whole bunch of different things. So uh I want to talk about editing, I want to talk about this new play. I want to talk about what does success look like you. So, like we'll see, we'll see if we can get to all these. But just to cement in on this power of the pitch, can we get one more example of a pitch? And I love the one that you tell in the story about the spice girls and the Victoria by being behind the scenes and identifying that and then pitching that idea. So, would you mind maybe solidifying that point and on on how we can pitch with that with that story?
1: Sure. And by the way, you know, when I got the uh, information about you in the podcast, and it talked about the work that you put into it. Did I really know that you put that kind of work into it? No, but it was a nice read. But I, I'm just pausing to acknowledge clearly you do, and I want you to know that I appreciate that. You know, and I, I am grateful that you did your homework and you can bring out those stories. And so, thank you for that. Well, That's thank really you.
0: <laughs> appreciate that.
1: Uh, so. And mainly I just wanted to get in your testimonial reel. So I thought I would you know, <laughs> <laughs> All right. You will be added. <laughs> uh, so I had this idea the victorious during the Victoria's secret fashion show, one of their earlier shows, the guest performers were the spice girls. And uh, so I had talked about doing a music video, you know, with uh, the angels, the models, you know, lip syncing a song. And the people at Victoria's Secret that I was dealing with couldn't really see what I was talking about. And so I thought, you know, I saw a rehearsal for the show that while the Spice Girls were singing their song, the models were backstage and they were in fact singing along with it. So I had my backstage uh, camera people shoot and I would tell them, you know, get uh, Adriana doing that. And, you know, get doubts and sing along with that. And so I put together like a 30 to 45 second. Here's what it could look like. So they didn't have to imagine anything. And I have found when selling, the less that they have to imagine, the better. You know, So the more that you can really show them what it is that, they're, that you're trying to sell them, uh, that's going to be more effective. So we edited together that piece and everybody loved it and so that started the lip sync videos which are hugely successful and you know I did them with Katy Perry with Maroon 5 uh you know with just all kinds of wonderful musicians that performed in the Victoria's Secret show and that became like a a yearly feature the the release of the music video we would do so it showed the client what it would look like they got the idea and then the first time we did it got millions and millions of views and it became a regular feature.
0: Hmm. That's well, so many lessons in that, but I just wanted to highlight too, the fact that like the show don't tell, like whenever you can come up with a proof of concept to really show someone something I'm under NDA cause I'm working with a client. So I can't share the specific details, but I'm working on a messaging project right now with someone. And like, I was having such a hard time trying to articulate what this thing did. Uh, and then I came up with a way of literally just showing like a screenshot of the product. So I haven't seen the result of the, the, the screenshot, but I think it's really important is like, whenever you're pitching or selling an idea, how can you plant a picture inside of someone's mind? That's what we we're talking about with storytelling, right? Like it's so important to be able to make someone really viscerally understand what this thing is. And if you're trying to use all these examples and really kind of just dance around the subject, the more that you can shoot a video and say, hey, this is what it's going to look like, or you can really just show, don't tell. That's really when people are going to understand at a much deeper level than if you had tried explaining in a million different directions.
1: And, And I think that how you make somebody feel has a much greater Yes. So important. And and when you put together the financial projections, I could put together a pitch for a smartphone and I could make the argument that if we were able to capture one to two percent of the market, that this could be a, you know, billion dollar business. Well, all of it is kind of logical, except the fact that you're not going to do it, you know, because it's not going to work. Because uh, you're not going to be able to get entry into that game, most likely. And even people as smart as the people who run uh, Amazon, Bezos's phone was a miserable failure. You know, and so they tried to launch a cell phone. You'd think they know what people want. They sell retail, but they didn't. So, you know, but you can put the numbers down so it all makes sense. Oh, yeah, we only have to capture like a percent of the market. We can do that much business but you won't, uh, but if you put something across in a compelling way that is either solving a problem or making life easier, or it's just cool, you know, think about Apple commercials. They don't tell you the resolution of the screen. They don't tell you about their processor. They show you cool technology, none of which they ever originated. Apple has never originated a product. They have copied everybody and they have never done anything original, but their sense of design is better. Their sense of user interface is simpler. And so they've taken other people's products, iterated on those products, so it makes it seem like it's their own. Mm-hmm. And that's really smart business. You know, it went from, just to give you a quick example, it went from the Sony Walkman, which was a generic term for the personal listening experience until Sony blew it out of the water with the iPod, And, uh, you know, it was the iPod wasn't any better, just looked cooler. And where Sony was showing you how they could fit all these things into this little container, the iPod commercials were showing you how much fun you could have listening to the music. Mm -hmm. So there's really interesting object lessons out there where you can learn about this and see this. So what I'm talking about isn't some kind of theory. These are major global businesses. This is what they do.
0: Yeah. And the another, you know, since we're on the Apple train, like another really common example that I've heard is like Apple could have said, it's 50 gigabytes. Like the storage is 50 gigabytes, but they said 10,000 songs in your pocket or something along those right. lines. I'm, I'm not remembering the actual numbers, but like you could picture, oh my gosh, what would it be like to have 10,000 songs in my pocket? You can't picture what the hell 50 gigabytes looks like. And so <laughs> exactly. it's, it's, it's all about all about storytelling. So, okay. So I'm going to walk out of the Victoria's Secret uh, proof of concept uh, door, and I'm going to enter the other door that you opened before. And that was the importance of editing. Because I think this is really important um, in, in so many different fa- facets. But since we were Talking about the Lloyd Price musical before, there was a. I was listening to a podcast that you were on, and you shared a story about editing and removing a scene and making the tough decision to remove a scene from your play. So, would you mind sharing that and the importance of editing uh, in the you know bigger context of just outside of a um, a play?
1: (laughs) Sure. Uh, So the first thing you do the very first day you're with cast and crew, you do what's called a table read where the actors are sitting around the table. Everybody's got the script. And it gives you a chance to just sort of hear each other for the first time because it's the first time you're all together before you then embark on the rehearsals and everything else. And uh, there is a scene, we call it the Australia scene, where Lloyd goes down to Australia for the first time. And uh, he gets high for the first time in his life, smokes pot for the first time. And by the way, first and only time. Uh, (laughs) And so as uh, the actors are reading it, they're cracking up and they're, they're laughing as they're reading it. And, you know, I'm sitting there as the writer, loving the fact that they're laughing at the lines that I hoped they would laugh at in the script, but something wasn't right. And, you know, I'm also the producer of this and something wasn't right and so we take a break uh and i meet with my director sheldon epps who's fabulous and i said to sheldon what did you think of the australia scene and he goes well we know it's funny everybody was sitting there laughing and it's interesting but is it essential and i said what do you mean essential He said, does it either reveal more about the character or does it move the plot forward? And I said, no. He said, then we don't need it. It's not essential. And that became my mantra. And that little story that so bam, five and a half pages out five and a half pages. I really like, but you can't allow anything to become too dear to you when you are a good editor. You know, you don't want to save something as a writer. You may want to save this paragraph because you have a really clever line in there that works. No, get rid of it. You know, nobody ever said, man, I wish that pitch would have gone on longer. (laughs) You know, nobody I don't think has ever said that in history. Uh, And so whether you are writing a script. Painting a picture, making a movie. Writing a book, putting together a pitch for your business, always ask yourself is it essential? And go through every line that you've got in your pitch and be ruthless in terms of editing things out. You know, so somebody said to Michelangelo when he was carving the David, how do you take this block of marble? and carve a David from it. And as the story goes, I cut away everything that doesn't look like David. And that's what you have to do. uh, And that's the power of the editing. So all of these things, to use your term from earlier, create velocity. The more you streamline, the more that you stick to the essence and essential messages that you have, And the way you do that is being ruthless about the words and ruthless about taking out things that aren't necessary or that are confusing or whatever. And so the editing process is the essential part of not only every creative pursuit, but it's also true with business pitches. And another thing about Apple, and here's an example of editing an entire product category. They made, this was jobs made the fundamental decision that they weren't gonna do any of the cases, any of the accessories, which is over a billion dollar business for their products. They stuck to the technology. They weren't gonna make the cases and they weren't gonna make all those other things because they felt it detracted from the innovation and the real money that they had. Uh, The real money that they made was in just creating these products that was really cool technology. And so they edited out an entire product category that many companies wouldn't have the guts to do because they'd say, God, there's a billion-dollar business there. Why should we let other people make cases for our stuff and all of that? So that's an example of editing too. Edit your offerings. So yeah, it, the it, concepts. I'm sorry, go ahead.
0: No, I was just gonna say the 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 way that I interpreted that, that I think is something that I've never thought about before, is like there's two different kinds of editing, right? There's something that you've already created. Like your play, and you say, "I have to remove this." That's one form of editing. Another form of editing is making a decision that then cuts off all future opportunities, like making the decision to not pursue building things for Apple. And like one thing that happened to me recently is, uh, almost a year ago to this date, is when I left my company to pursue seven-figure millennials and all the other stuff I was working with it with a company. And one of the things that I ended up asking myself when I was trying to make this decision was like, if my life were a movie you know, what would the decision that would have to be made here? I'd be like, it'd be a boring ass fucking movie if I stayed in this job, <laughs> I, I had to leave. And so that was kind of a question that I asked myself. And so I think that that's an interesting thing to think about is like, it, we need to edit both after we've created something, and then we need to edit future decisions by making powerful decisions that are in alignment before we want to go.
1: Yeah, yeah that's, a, yeah, that's a really interesting way of putting it too, but you're right.
0: Awesome. Thank you. Okay, so I'll, I'll keep going with the door metaphor. <laughs> so I will, we'll, we'll leave the editing, we'll leave the editing one. And we'll go back to the other one that you mentioned before is the importance of defining success. So um, I would love to, I know that this is like a, a way that you talk to your students about this when you teach them. So I would love to kind of pretend if like I'm sitting in the classroom and our friend that's listening to this podcast with us right now, we're sitting in the classroom, we walk in and you're about to have this conversation about uh, leading your classroom on defining success. So how do you lead this topic and what are we going what are we going to experience as we sit in your classroom?
1: Well, I ask uh, what is success? How do you design how do you define success for you? What does that mean? And so uh, you know there's various answers. You know, some people look at success as, you know, the acquisition of wealth, uh, you know, the acquisition of things. Uh, you know, it's interesting because I think that uh, how you define success, you know, that's a certain script that you're writing and a certain map that you are rendering. And, you know, I don't think success is a destination because it's temporary you know, you may have some triumphs along the way, but you're also going to get knocked on your ass too. If you are an entrepreneur, if you're just living life, forget entrepreneur, if you're just living life, you might get fired from your job. I mean, one of the reasons I'm an entrepreneur is that I'm unemployable. So, you know, that makes it tough to be an entrepreneur. But I think that, you know, you have to define what success means to you. What is it? And then what are you willing to do to pursue it, you know. Are you willing to put blinders on and have that kind of obsession? Because you don't get to be uh, Elon Musk, you don't get to be Steve Jobs, you don't get to be Ralph Lauren, you don't get to be these people without obsession. And so, those people that are held up as the pinnacles of success are also people that are at the pinnacle of obsession because you just don't build a global business, a multi-billion dollar business and not be obsessed. So there's cost to that, you know, uh, and the, by all accounts, Jobs was an incredibly difficult person to work with and to be around. You know, Bezos, Bill Gates had, you know, marriages that fell apart. You know, uh, now so, does a UPS driver have marriage that falls apart and all of that? We don't look at them. We look at these people that have achieved these great things because we create mythologies around them. And, you know, there's these things that have been coming out recently about Bill Gates that, you know, did he behave inappropriately? Uh, and Bill Gates was a geeky guy, and the only people he ever met was through his work. You know, it's not like he went and hung out at bars. You know, and most of us in our adult life, you meet people through work or through associations like that. But, you know, how you define success is at the quality of relationships that you have. What are the costs that are inevitably going to come if you're obsessed, like I'm talking about, or if you're striving for a kind of success that excludes others and your only metric is the wealth that you gain from it? But I posit the question, and I'm curious to your your answer, Brandon, can you be making a lot of money, highly regarded in your field, like these people I was talking about, but be miserable every day you go to work? I'm not saying they're miserable, but I'm saying, can you be miserable, even though you're making a ton of money and are highly respected in your field, but you feel totally unfulfilled and somehow it feels empty?
0: Absolutely. Are you,
1: are you still successful?
0: No. And it, it's funny, it's, I'm gonna connect a whole bunch of things here. But like I saw that you you did an interview with Jonathan Levy at Superhuman Academy. And I so that was I was working with Jonathan for several years. And while I was working with Jonathan, I was also in Genius Network. And so like that's where I got an opportunity to meet Joe Polish. I know you're really close with Joe, but like that was the huge eye-opener for me. It's like I was so grateful and blessed to be in Genius Network at age 22 i was like the youngest person in the room at genius network and that's what i saw is like that lots of joe's work is around you know helping people with addictions and like lots of people that are insanely successful they 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 turn to these addictions because they haven't been able to uh answer this question i think maybe they pursued entrepreneurship prior to understanding this question so that's why this is such an important topic is because there is no right or wrong answer to that's this right. question it's it's 100% individualized to you and i think that you know, this podcast about prioritizing your happiness, health and relationships while making your, your business a reality. And, you know, the other core thing about this is the quote by Jim Rohn, become a millionaire, not for the million dollars, but for what it will make of you to achieve it. I, those are things that I've kind of come to understand for me as to why I pursue entrepreneurship. It's for the growth. You know, it may, it doesn't necessarily mean having a seven figure business, but it means pursuing something and prioritizing the important things in life. And so I definitely have some more journaling to do on this topic, but I think that if you're listening to this right now and you, you're, you're chasing a path and you haven't defined this, this is like level zero that I think is, is is critical. So I love that you share this and that this is a core component of the class that you teach as well.
1: Well, I think that so many people, if they ask that question at all, ask it when they're middle-aged, they're unhappy and unfulfilled. And then they feel trapped because they feel too old to make any changes. And it becomes like the golden handcuffs. You know, you hate what you're doing, but you're paid well to do it. And you don't know how you'd replace that income because you're afraid, mm-hmm. so you just continue, but it doesn't get any better, you know. And you know, I have always been seduced by ideas. And if you said to me, uh, Jeff, I have a surefire way to make money: write a play. <laughs> you're nuts, because you know it's it's not. And I'm, you know, I'm seven, six, seven years into this project, but I am passionate wow. about the project. Uh, the people that I am so fortunate to be working with are so talented. We all share the same goal of putting the best possible piece of entertainment that actually says something. And it can actually enrich people's lives in front of that audience that, you know, you have to remember, why you're doing something. And it's really important to understand what is your motivation? You know, is your motivation, you know, I have friends that are very, very successful in the financial world, but I don't have the interest level to maintain about hearing about the deals they're doing. Yeah. It's just, you know, uh, I want them to invest in my play. But, you know, <laughs> <laughs> hey, you make a lot of money. I've got a proposition for you. But uh, <laughs> But, you know, hearing about deals isn't very interesting to me. But hearing about the ups and downs of business, the stories that go along with that. And Lloyd's story is an incredible story. So, you know, you're going to face difficulties no matter what you do. But it's good to have a reason as to why you're willing to tolerate it and put up with it and endure. And I think, you know, for your listeners, you know, I get all these questions all the time about so what's the key to success? I I don't know, but I can tell you a necessary personality trait, and that is perseverance, because it's going to be tough. And maybe you have something that ignites really early on then you're going to have problems with dealing with growth or it hasn't caught on uh, and it's getting slowly getting traction and that's frustrating to you and that's obstacles to you. But, you know, whatever happens, the one thing that's for certain is that you're going to have obstacles. You're going to have difficulties. And sometimes they're going to be to such a degree you have to pause and think about, why am I doing this? (laughs) You know, and you better have a pretty good answer. Otherwise it's going to be really hard to endure the difficulties that you're going to inevitably face.
0: Yeah. So, so true. So I'm going to, I'm going to, ask you really quick here jeff i know our scheduled time is we have about five minutes left but i I, so i just want to ask like i have a few stories that we can dive into or we can start to conclude things so i'll just kind of let you based on your calendar i want to be 100 respectful so it's it's totally up to you otherwise i'll ask something shorter we can start moving down the closing route
1: (laughs) well i i am uh i'm available to you uh you know i'm having a lot of fun talking to you uh and i hope this means something to your listeners and uh Go for it. Let's do awesome. whatever you want.
0: Awesome. I really appreciate that. It's going to be going to be fun. So, let's let's transition into store uh some component of, of storytelling. So, um this is a story that came from your book that I'd love for you to tell is uh in 1991, Ralph, Ralph Lauren was uh awarded a lifetime achievement award and this is the most prestigious award a designer can win. It's the Oscar of the fashion industry black tie event and it was the award was going to be presented with a movie Legend and actress Audrey Hepburn and um, Ralph asked you to do the video. And so I would love for you to share this story because I think it's super powerful about, um, you know, the extra work that you do to really dig in. And also it leads us into storytelling as well.
1: So I was having dinner with Ralph and his wife, Ricky, at their home, and he said, you know, I'd really like you to do this this film uh, for the Lifetime Achievement Award that will be at Lincoln Center. And, uh, you know, he told me that Audrey Hepburn was gonna be presenting it. And I know in Ralph's mind, it's not about fashion. You know, Ralph doesn't design clothes in his mind. What Ralph does is make movies and he is wardrobing the characters. And that's how he approaches design. So Audrey Hepburn is one of those iconic figures that he dresses in his imagination, you know, uh, so. I know Ralph's psychology. And, uh, but he is also, it's interesting because it's Ralph Lauren, the brand, but there's Ralph Lauren, the individual. And I wanted to tell the story of Ralph Lauren, the individual and how his business evolved into a brand. So, uh, they have these beautifully bound albums at home. And I said, what are those? And he said, you know, those are just family pictures and so on. I said, can I see them? And so we're looking through and there's a picture of Ralph as a baby. And I said, oh, this is great. I want to open with this. And he shakes his head now. And I said, why not? He says, oh, I, don't, I don't want to go there. And I said, it will work and it will get the audience involved from the beginning because I'll be so surprised because we're pulling back the curtain and showing Ralph Lauren, the human being. And, you know, he said, no, I don't want to do that. And I said, look, you know, we looked through thousands of your images from at his office, you know, of all the ad campaigns and everything else. And uh, he looked at me and said, you think something's missing? I said, I do. And he said, what? What's missing? And I said, these are all posed pictures, beautifully composed, beautifully taken. But I want your humanity. I know you. I talk to you. We laugh together. We work together. And I want to show the world that humanity. That's going to be much more compelling than showing a polished version of the image that's been created. And he goes, no. No, I just don't want to go there. Coincidentally, I had with me, and it was a coincidence, it was the year of my parents' 50th anniversary. My sister Janice and I were putting together a surprise party for my parents. And I put together a five-minute video from our home movies, from pictures of them when they were kids, and all of that. And I said, Ralph, I want to show you something. I show him that film, and... He and Ricky are crying at the end of it. And he looks at me and says, I'm crying. I don't even know these people. <laughs> and I said, that's what I want to do for you. And he said, okay, you convince me. And so we start with the baby picture. And so imagine we're at Lincoln Center. As you said, Black Tie Affair, Hollywood icon, Audrey Hepburn comes out, talks about Ralph, then introduces the film. And I will tell you that the fashion industry, that crowd, is a tough, tough crowd. And I knew that either I would have them at the beginning or this film would crash and burn. And so would my relationship with Ralph, because I talked him into it. (laughs) And so the room goes black. We fade up from black to Ralph as a baby. And you can recognize it's him. And there's this audible gasp from the audience. And I knew I had him. And at the end, for the last, truly for the last like 45 to 60 seconds of the film, which I do a bunch of him coming out at the runway at the end and taking his bow and all of that and recapping his life at the end. The audience is on their feet, wildly cheering. And then he comes out and, you know, I knew that I nailed it. You know, you're always at risk when you put stuff out there because you don't ultimately really know how it's going to work until you put it in front of an audience. Nobody starts off to create something crappy. Nobody, you know, tries to create something that's going to be a failure uh, except for the movie, the producers, but that's, that's another story. <laughs> um, great, great film though. But um and, and so when I heard the audience's response and then at the end they were on their feet, uh, it was so satisfying to me. And Ralph was overjoyed because in his mind, from his movie idol, from when he was a kid, Audrey Hepburn, he's getting this statue that to him, as you said, was not the CFDA award. It was an Oscar for Lifetime Achievement. So it was an incredible moment, an incredible process. And it goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning, trust. And ultimately, he trusted me to execute on that promise that I would make something for him that's really special. Fortunately, it ended up working.
0: Yeah. My huge takeaways from that are, one, the the power of being human, too. Like, that's so important, is the fact that you showed... Who he really like? Just a a, a non can't like a non posed picture or anything like that. Just someone that was naturally like everybody has those baby pictures and everybody can immediately relate to that. Their heart goes out to that. And um, it was necessary to to make that moment that you want. And the other thing that's something you didn't even mention that was just in you showing, not telling. Going back to our conversation is like anybody listen to this. Go go back and re listen to Jeff tell that story again. Like just listen to how he articulates. There's so many lessons that you can learn from him just telling the story. Like the specificity, like the the, the picture that we have of sitting in the audience and the, the everything going black and fading up. Like those are all images that he planted in our brains. And so it was just a beautifully told story. So there's there's that lesson in and of itself if you want to go and replay that listen to it because i'm sure you could do that for this whole interview <laughs> but, it, but it was great um I, I, I just want to be respectful so I, I don't want to go too much over but there's another another one that I thought would be really fun to talk about and this is a, a concept from your book which again, I've, I've read the book fantastic book would highly recommend everybody to go check out um, and, and we'll, we'll talk about how people can find out about that later I'm sure if they just search on Amazon and stuff like that but one of the things you talk about in the beginning is the myth of the lightning bolt um, and so I would love to discuss the myth of the lightning bolt and maybe introduce it by talking about um, what Hamilton has to do with umbrellas <laughs>
1: Good transition there. Wow. (laughs) Good good thing. I read my own book. (laughs) Uh, uh, So, uh, people from Victoria's secret came in and said, uh, we want to do a commercial for the first time around the gift with purchase promotion. I said, okay. And, uh, they said, so it's going to be an umbrella. I said, okay. And, uh, they said, so can you do anything cool with an umbrella? And I said, sure. Said, "Well, what? So give me a minute. I don't, I don't know yet. And they didn't even have the umbrella at that meeting. Uh, But I said, yeah, I can, Uh, I'll come up with something. And so uh, at that time, uh, I think it was probably the next, within the next two days, I went, my wife and I went to see Hamilton. This was even before it was on Broadway. And, you know, it's one of those plays that transforms theaters. It was amazingly well done and the choreography was great. And so I thought, you know, that some of the dance and movements from Hamilton, along with Bob Fosse, who was a, a great choreographer, uh, and for film and for theater and, uh, There could be something there. And then Busby Berkeley who made these extravagant musicals for MGM back in the thirties where they would shoot 50 dancers from overhead and they do these kaleidoscopic shapes and it was really phenomenal. So I always have this overarching ambition to do something that I don't have the budget for, and I don't have the personnel for and all of that, (laughs) but I, I want to do it. So I try to figure out some way to do it. So I spoke to my editor and said, can we clone these images but I want them to be not exactly the same so that we can, it looks real and you can't tell that we cloned images, which we did. And so I pitched the whole idea to Victoria's Secret. They liked the idea. Uh, And then I talked to a composer and who I'd worked with before, a very talented guy. And uh, I said, so I want the soundtrack to be the sound of rain, the sound of lightning and thunder and uh there's no sound of lightning is there but it was <laughs> rain, rain and thunder and then the tip of the umbrella is wood and we're going to be on a concrete floor so the tapping of the tip of the umbrella on the floor and the popping sound that the umbrella makes because you press a button and go boom, you know opens up that's those are your instruments and he laughed and said you're kidding i said no th- that's what i want you to do go out on the sidewalk and i'm sending you the umbrella record the tip of the umbrella. And those are all your percussion instruments. And then you've got the rain underneath and the thunder. And he said, okay. He said, I love this. I can't believe the shit that you challenged me with. (laughs) And I said, well, let's do it. Let's do it. And he did a brilliant job. And so it worked out really well. It was phenomenally successful and the success was gauged by not just how many people watched it, it moved umbrellas. <laughs> you know, the gift with purchase promotion was very successful. And if I had not gone to Hamilton and thinking, God, I want to do something in a musical vein and really turn this into something really cool and unexpected. Uh, and so I ended up also hiring uh Stephanie Clemens, who is the associate choreographer for Hamilton, to work with me on it. And she did a marvelous job. And it was a total blast, and it was successful. So The the real takeaway from that is constantly expose yourself to the best work out there. Go to theater, go to museums, uh, go to watch movies, uh, go down the rabbit holes you can go down on YouTube to look at at creative influences and inspiration. Listen to music, go to meetups, meet with people who you never met, met with before and just talk to them about stuff. And constantly be bringing in all kinds of inputs to you because the more you expose yourself to ideas, the more little dots start connecting in your neural firings and the more those constellations can form and inform ideas that you have. So I knew about Hamilton. I knew about Busby Berkeley. I knew about Bob Fosse. And so it's all of those kinds of things that can help feed your creativity and to do fun work.
0: Love that. So the myth of the lightning bolt is that it's not a strike that happens. It's accumulation of diverse experiences that allow you and enable you to have those moments that if you hadn't placed yourself in those environments previously, it would never have happened.
1: No, and, that's a, and that is a, a, a great point. And thank you for bringing that back up. Because- Ideas don't burst forth fully formed. It just, your brain doesn't work that way. But the more connections that you have, using the metaphor of the dots and forming constellations, the more input you have, the more educated you are, and the more aware you are of these things, it may be something that then gels it into something that seems like it's a lightning bolt. But if you didn't have all those other inputs, that wouldn't have happened. So your mind doesn't work with that flash of inspiration and something comes forth full blown. It's because you're constantly feeding your creative means and nourishing your creativity with all those disparate influences all the time.
0: Love that. Well, Jeff, you've been so generous with your time. I know we're already over. So I'll just ask the final questions and we can start to conclude, but this has been so much fun. So uh, the last question I've been asking all these guests is just like, and, and I know it's a kind of a big question, but as someone that has taught, you know, thousands of students at this point, interviewed hundreds of successful people that are both in your book and just friends that you know, um, and as somebody that has prioritized and, and really come to understand what passion means for you, what, what does happiness mean to Jeff today?
1: Happiness to me, there's a, there's a few things. Happiness is looking forward to the day when you wake up and that you are fully engaged with what it is you're going to be doing that day. So when we were in rehearsals for the play, I was happy every morning that I was heading into rehearsals because I was going to be working with other creative people and we all shared the same goal. That was great. But happiness can also be simple, like my wife and I enjoying a movie together, laying in bed and watching a movie together. You know, happiness is is for me about relationships. I am fortunate and I work on it, but I am fortunate that the guy I told you about that his mother and my mother grew up together. We're still dear friends. Uh, One of my closest friends has been since third grade. Uh, when Zoom hit, uh, when COVID hit and Zoom sort of became the social Zoom <laughs> Yes, that's true. Uh, what happened, the first Zoom meeting I did is I put together 15 kids, no longer kids, from the neighborhood where we grew up. Most of them wow. hadn't seen each other for 50 years. And I put a Zoom call together for a neighborhood reunion. And... It was a total blast. So relationships bring me great happiness working on things that are fulfilling with people who, and I have a, I'll give you one rule I have. And uh, I said this to Sheldon apps, the director, because I interviewed a bunch of directors and and I just really sparked with him. And I said, I have the no asshole. Rule. And he laughed and said, I think I know what you mean, but why don't you tell me what you mean by that. And I said, If I'm working for you and you're paying me, you can be an asshole. You can never be abusive, but you can be an asshole, especially if you're paying me enough. (laughs) But if you're working for me, you can't be. And he laughed and said, I have the same rule. And so the team that we have together, it's a joy because it's not about... Anybody trying to impose their will or ego on others, it's about putting that great piece of entertainment in front of an audience. And so that no asshole rule, I think, is important to implement as young as you can, because those anybody that robs the joy of the process, you don't want to be around.
0: Yeah, you know? Beautiful. know, edit those people out going back to the, the <laughs> exactly thing. So right. That, uh... Edit them out and they're easy <laughs> to edit out. That's right. Yeah, awesome. Well, Jeff, this has been a blast. Uh, Just where can people find out more? I make sure I'll make sure in the show notes. Anybody that wants to watch any of these videos we've talked about—the deck the halls commercial, the umbrella um, commercial—you know, those will all be on the show notes page. Uh, We have Creative Careers: Make a Living with Your Ideas. You can find that on Amazon. That'll be linked up on the on the show notes. Anything else that I missed there, Jeff? If people want to find out more about the incredible work that you're doing,
1: Uh, there's an Instagram site called At A Creative Career. And uh, there is uh, a website, a creativecareer.com. And you can also follow me on LinkedIn, be Jeffrey Madoff. And I post clips from my class. So you'll hear from people like Damon John and uh, Simon Sinek and a bunch of other people who are just phenomenal. Uh, Susan Lacey, who's won 28 Emmy Awards and 12 Peabody Awards for her films. And just you know, great people that you can listen to uh, and gain insights from. Because there are no recipes for success. There's ideas and you have to figure out what resonates with you and what can you execute on.
0: Love that, go check that out. I've watched a ton of these, I've read the book, I highly endorse it if you want. Jeff has done a fantastic job of taking all the wisdom, and it's not—it's not like uh, Tim Ferriss' Tools of Titans, where it's like each person gets a chapter. It's like woven; everybody gets woven out throughout the theme of of crafting a creative career. So, very well done. Would highly recommend everybody check that out. And I just want to say for the people listening right now, if you're brand new, I just wanted to say welcome. It's been an honor having you hang out with me and Jeff today. I hope you become a regular listener and subscriber. And you can tell I like to go really deep here with people like Jeff. And I. we always have a lot of fun. And if you're returning, I just want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. You are absolutely what makes this possible. I appreciate you. And whether you are new or returning, I have a favor. And that is... If you're listening to my voice right now, please do me a favor. And my life has absolutely been changed by podcasts that people have shared with me. So if you've been listening to Jeff share these incredible stories about how you can have a creative career and how the incredible insights that he's had, please click the share button and share it with a friend. It's really going to make their day. It's going to help Jeff with his work and it'll it'll make me very happy as well. So with that said, appreciate you, Jeff. Appreciate you listening. And Jeff, again, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. This has been so much fun.
1: I've really enjoyed it too. Thank you, Bren, for having me on course
0: hey it's brandon here again and i have a quick favor to ask before you head off and that is if you are listening to my voice right now